as those baskets are making their way around, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you're pretty astute and your body still doesn't think it's 7 a.m., you will recognize this is not Genesis, right? Hopefully you, you, you keyed in on that. We are, yes, indeed, going to be preaching through the book of Genesis. We wanted to wait, though, until after spring break to just to kind of give us a, a clear runway to take off into that book. So we're going to begin that series on, on April 7th and, be, and we'll be in it for some time until Jesus comes or whichever comes first, whatever. But for these next four weeks, we're going to be in a series that we are calling Flourishing, a, a trip through the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when you came in, you should, have, you could, should have gotten one of these. If you didn't, you can grab one and you go out. You can use these booklets to take notes for, for your sermon, uh, personal devotions in the morning, community group discussion questions. But you can grab one of these on, on the way out. Now, look, let me get something out of the way right up top because it's, it's the question I think many of us immediately have is, Pastor Paul, what do we mean by this word Flourishing. It might, it might be something you've heard um, even in a secular context or in the news or media. In fact, it's a very popular word, flourishing. When we use the word flourishing, what we're really asking is what does it mean to live the good life? What does it mean to lead a life well-led? When Jesus says, I've come to give you abundant life or life to the full, what does that mean? Now, you may not have a Webster Dictionary definition of flourishing right at your fingertips, and if you do, something's probably somewhat wrong with you. But you probably don't have like a, like a, like a, a technical definition in mind. But let me tell you, every one of us has a functional definition of what flourishing is, don't we? All of us have, whether we state it or not, or whether it's explicit or not, we have some idea in our mind of what the good life looks like. You know, for parents, this past weekend, your, you, your vision of the good life, your vision of flourishing means you get to, on Saturday morning, oh my goodness, you finally get to sleep till 10, and then you wake up, and you're reading a book, and then your whole family goes to brunch, and it's just awesome. That's your vision of flourishing. Your children have another kind of vision of flourishing, right? That's up at 5.30 a.m. They don't know daylight like time, saving time is coming. Their, their idea of flourishing is turning your house into a roller derby ring. And, and like your, your visions of flourishing are, are sort of competing. They're at odds, right? And of course, this happens culturally, and the stakes are much, much higher. You know, yesterday... Um, thousands gathered to walk in the Walk for Life to fund um, as, as the fundraiser, annual fundraiser for the Women's Pregnancy Center to help women who are in the middle of a crisis pregnancy. And, and this fundraiser is happening in the shadow of the fact that there are legislative bodies all across this country passing laws expanding the right to abortion for any and all reasons, even after birth even if it means killing a baby on an operating table just because my decision or what I think will lead to my flourishing might be jeopardized or in danger. And, and, and people are applauding. And we have to say, ask, how does that happen? How do we get to this place? It really comes down to this 
issue of the good life, the de- definition of flourishing. See, for us, there's a cultural script which say flourishing is found in the independent, autonomous self. And so anything that sets limits on my choices, on my freedom, on my autonomy is the enemy, and it is to be attacked at all costs. Now, of course, as Christians, as the church, we can often be confused about what the good life is ourselves, right? If I were to ask you what the good life is for you, maybe you'll talk about your kids and their safety or the size of your IRA or getting your kids the right sort of education and the right kind of jobs. And, and, and if those things are going right, Pastor Paul, then, then, then I'm flourishing, my kids are flourishing, my family is flourishing. But enter Jesus, and isn't it always up to Jesus to bring some clarity to these things? Enter Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Now, what's interesting is that in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus has been traveling around in Galilee. He's been healing. He's been gathering up these crowds of thousands. His fame has spread far and wide. He's healing diseases. But the people are coming to him because they are literally desperate for something. They're, see, they're searching for the good life too. They're wondering what it means to flourish because they're showing up saying, Jesus, what's happening now? I, I'm not flourishing. You know, our, our, our nation is held captive. You know, we're prisoners in our own land. We haven't heard from God in 400 years. So, so, so Jesus, give us a word. Now, isn't it interesting that these, the, the Beatitudes are actually the first recorded teachings of Jesus in all of Scripture? Now, we know that from John, he did, was doing other things and miracles, but this is, in fact, the first time Jesus has a captive audience. He's speaking to the masses. He has a word to say to them. They are, they're, they're coming, they're sitting at his feet. They're wanting him to give them a word, a direction, a vision for what their life should be like. Isn't it interesting that Jesus begins with the Beatitudes? So what we're going to do, endeavor to do over these next four weeks is work through these as we ask God to give us a vision of what it means to flourish, what it means to live the good life. Who is it in here that's really flourishing, that's really living the good life? Jesus tells us this. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read through these Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, and we're going to tackle the first three of these. But just imagine you're, you're the poor, helpless masses, sheep without a shepherd, needing a word, needing a vision. And by the way, that is all of us. And coming and sitting at Jesus' feet. And then here is what Jesus says. Verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, what will Jesus say? Blessed are those, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may take a seat. If we don't understand what Jesus means when he says blessed, we're not going to understand the way Jesus defines flourishing. Now, when we think of being blessed, we often associate it with the idea of receiving blessings, like God giving us something or, or a relative giving us a gift for Christmas. I remember Susan and I, when we were dating and even when we were first married, we'd go over to my grandparents' house. And my grandmother, I, I don't know where she, she kept the hidden jar, masonry jar of money, but anyway, she always had like some money she was pulling out. She'd pull out the 20s. And she would stick it in my back pocket and say, there you go, honey. That's a little blessing for you. And so we were, you know, we would visit Grandma eight, nine times a day. It was pretty amazing. We're, she gave us a little bit of that blessing, Grandma. And, and a lot of times that's what we think about when we think about blessings, something that is given to us. Now, if that's the way the Sermon on the Mount is written, the Beatitudes are written, then, then, then these are mainly if-then clauses, Right? So in other words, if you're poor in spirit, then God will give you the kingdom of heaven. Or if if you are merciful, then God will show you mercy. And that would be a mistake, I think. Now, there's there's a different Greek word for that kind of blessing, and that's a legitimate blessing that God gives us. But these are not blessings in that sort of way. These are what we would call pronouncements. These are, this is what happens when the angel shows up to Mary to tell her she is with child, and he tells her, hell, Mary, what? Favored one. See, this has the sense of, of, of God looking down on us and making a pronouncement, making an announcement and saying, congratulations, you are blessed because of this. It literally gets at this idea of, 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 of someone who is in an enviable position. So, you know, growing up in East Tennessee, it was uh, every year the, I was the Honor Society or something in school, we'd, we would get to go to, would get to, go to uh, Six Flags in Georgia, that wretched place in Atlanta. And, and I remember if you had to be in the Honor Society or something to get to go, and always those who got to go, we would always look at them or they would look at us and we'd say, you what? You lucky dog, right? They were favored. They were, they were, they were blessed. So the, these are pronouncements. Now, this has led some to say, well, maybe we should, it would be better to, to translate this word blessed to be happy. You know, happy are the poor in spit or happy are those who mourn. And, and, and that's a little better. But I think Jonathan Pennington, who's a professor at Southern Theological Seminary, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, really gets it right when he says, you know what? 
the, the, the word in our 21st century context that probably comes the closest that we most identify with in terms of what Jesus is saying is this idea of flourishing. And when you insert the word flourishing, hmm, then, then these beatitudes take on a whole different sort of vibe and meaning. Because then Jesus is, is looking out over here this morning, and he's saying, do you want to know who's flourishing in here? I'll tell you who's flourishing in here. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are those who are meek. Flourishing are those who are being persecuted. Those are the ones who are truly blessed. And these next four weeks, as we unpack these beatitudes, we're going to see that Jesus' definition of flourishing is very, very oftentimes different than ours. But, 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 but that's not bad news. In fact, that, that's the very best news. Because our vision of flourishing can often be so small, so minute, so temporary, so unimaginative, so lacking in creativity. And Jesus wants to tell us, I've got something far beyond that in mind for you when I think about your flourishing, when I think about what it means for you to live the good life. So we're going to tackle these, the first three of these Beatitudes today. I think you're going to see how they build upon one another. And I think you're going to see how they give you a different but better vision for your life, for my life, for our life together. So number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm going to try to restate these every time just to emphasize this point. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Do you want to know who is flourishing in this room this morning? It's the poor in spirit. Now, this idea of poor, it literally means to be a beggar or a pauper. It means to, to, to be in a, in a sort of in an instinctive posture of need, of humility, of helplessness in attitude and in spirit. It means approaching one another and with God, literally saying, I've got nothing good to offer. I'm in a completely helpless state. Unless something is given to me, there's nothing I can do to earn it or deserve it. Now, it's interesting, like, let's just be honest, that is absolutely crazy talk, right, in the 21st century. When we think about what it what it means to, to, to build a kingdom, right? We, we, we switch this all around, and the secular version of this could be, you know, happy and flourishing are the self-assured. Or happy or flourishing are the supremely confident, the brazen, the entrepreneurs, those who don't need anyone or anything. Happy are those... Flourishing is the self-made man or the self-made woman. And, you know, a lot of us have just totally bought into that. That, our, that, that, that our, our vision for the good life 
means somehow building some sort of kingdom right here, right now, right you know, here today. It doesn't have to be a literal kingdom. We've got all kinds of kingdoms. Kingdoms in our heart, things that give us status and significance. And, G- and God says, I've got something way, way bigger in store for you that makes that little kingdom look pitiful. He said, I want you to have my kingdom. That's what I really want to give you. See, poor in spirit, it's interesting that it's the very first beatitude because Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and and I, I think he's right, it's the fundamental characteristic of every Christian. It is, it's not so much something that you strive to be, although we pray this into our lives. It's something that we are. That's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian means coming here, coming before God, literally empty-handed, knowing that there is nothing that we can do, nothing that we can offer that would merit his grace, merit his favor, deserve his mercy. There, knowing that there's, 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 again, as I prayed before, this is not a 50-50 gig. It's not even a 90-10 gig. This is, this is 100% God's grace. And the paradox of the life of flourishing is that the only way to receive God's kingdom is to admit that we don't deserve it. See, We can't receive God's mercy. We can't receive God's favor until we recognize that we need it. So we have to ask the question, don't we? Well, Pastor Paul, what does it mean to to become poor in spirit? You know, you don't have to sequester yourself in a monastery. You don't have to engage in sort of self-flagellation. You don't... You don't wallow around in the, in, in the mud and, and sort of think about how lowly you are. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus means by being poor in spirit. See, becoming poor in spirit doesn't start by looking at yourself. Who does it start by looking at? God. See, you will, you will always grade yourself higher than God will, right? You'll always give yourself better marks if all you're doing is looking at yourself. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, every time God calls out a faithful servant that he wants to use, that he wants to restore, that he wants to pour mercy and grace on, who will in turn go and preach the good news or serve other people, what is the first thing God always does for that person? He shows himself to them. They come face to face with God Moses was was called to be God's faithful servant. And God says, get your shoes off, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. Oh, Moses, you want to see my glory? I'll show you like my backside, but I got to hide you in that little rock like we sang this morning or else you'll get consumed. Isaiah, you've got like big time preaching to do to the people of God. But before you go up there, I'm going to invite you into my throne room. And when Isaiah comes face to face with God, when he sees God, what does he do? He wants to disappear into the carpet. He says, I'm just a man of unclean lips. Peter, the first time, one of the first time he meets Jesus, Jesus calls him to be a disciple. Jesus gives him this mother load of fish to carry. And what does Peter say? Away from me, Lord, I am an unclean man. 
So look to God. See, when we look at God, it gives us a very clear picture of reality. It gives us a clear picture for ourselves. It lets us know that we don't have anything to offer, that when he loves us, accepts us, receives us, it's all because of his grace. Being poor in spirit is the foundational, fundamental characteristic of a Christian. It's the prerequisite for coming to God. And as low and as hard and as difficult as it can be to be poor in spirit, to know, to admit to yourself, to admit to God, I'm not really who I think I am. I'm not really who other people think I am. But God, you know who I am. And, and, and that is so hard because we feel like we're losing something. We feel like we're losing a kingdom. We feel like we're, we're lowering, lowering our status. We feel like we're... You know, what good can come of this? And God says, I've got a better kingdom to give to you. It's my kingdom. Let me tell you who's flourishing here this morning, Jesus would tell us. It's the poor in spirit. They're the ones who are flourishing. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you're going to see how these build upon each other here. Now, Let's state it again. I'm gonna, again, I'm, I'm just going to b- keep on, keep on. Again, who is it that's flourishing in here? It's those of you who are mourning. Now, I, I don't know what, what you think about when you think about the word mourn. You know, I think about sadness, and, and I don't like to be sad. You know, I take those personality tests, and, and sadness is bad, right? So I'm always the guy who is interjecting some, like, ill-timed bit of humor right in the middle of a very grievous sort of situation, and, and you know, I'm trying to, to dis, you know, lighten things up a little bit. Um, maybe that's you. Maybe you don't, like, you don't like this idea of grief or sadness. Or maybe you're on the other extreme. You know, Susan, we've been watching the, the Victoria series on PBS, and, and if this is spoiler alert, you're like 200 years late, so just hold on. But her love of her life, Victoria and Albert, Albert coming up here soon is going to die. That happens. And what's interesting is that Victoria lives another 30, 40 years, and the history books tell us she wore black every day for the rest of her life. Every day. Because she was in mourning. Now, let me just say, whatever your conception, if it's related to that when we talk about mourning, that's not what Jesus means. Jesus is not talking about a state of, or posture of sadness or grief, although that, that can be involved. He's actually talking about something more related to a spiritual lament. Now listen to, what, listen to the way Martin Lloyd-Jones defines mourning, and I think he's, he's right on. It's really good. He says, to mourn is something that follows of necessity from, from being poor in spirit. It is quite inevitable as I confront God in his holiness and contemplate the life that I am meant to live, I see myself, my utter helplessness and hopelessness. That was poor in spirit. Now listen to this. I discover my quality of spirit and immediately that makes me what? 
mourn. A man who truly faces himself and examines himself and his life is a man who must of necessity mourn for his sins also for the things he does. Do you see the connection there? As we are poor in spirit and see ourselves for who we truly are, that's naturally going to evoke something in us. It's, it, it, it's, it's, we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to look at God and we're going to know we offer nothing and we're going to cry out to God, God, forgive me. God, comfort me. God, help me. God, sp- speak peace to my soul. You know, according to Romans, and by the way, mourning is something, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, every person in the history of the world has to contend with. And here's what I mean. Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1 and 2, that whether you know God by name or not, whether you trust in Jesus Christ or not, that God's law is written on every person's heart in this room. Your family members, people you who maybe don't know Christ, might even be an atheist, might be an agnostic. God says it doesn't matter. Deep down in the recesses of their soul, they know I'm there. Now, they'll do all kinds of things to suppress it and hide from it and run from it, but, they, but that they know it's there. And when they sin, when they, when, they, when they falter, when they transgress this law, this is everybody, this law written on their hearts, on your heart, there's something that happens internally in our soul. There's a pang of conscience. There's a sense of regret. There's a, there's a feeling of discombobulation. There is, a, there is a sense of unsettledness. And everybody has to do something with that. See, when, when, when you fall in that way, when you come up short in that way, whether in small ways or in grievous ways, you, that has to go somewhere, that sense of lament. And we've invented all sorts of ways, haven't we, as a culture, even as Christians, to not go there. Maybe you're someone like me who eats their feelings, right? Maybe it's porn or sex or hobbies or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Anything, anything at all to avoid just feeling sad, feeling, feeling the weight of that sin, feeling the pressure of it. Jesus tells us to do something that is just countercultural. It just it, it it goes against every instinct that we have. But this is what he says to do. He says, when you, when you mourn, what are we doing when we mourn? We dwell. We think. We ponder. We lean into it. Even when it's hard, even when it's painful. We park it right there and look at it for what it is. And, and this seems so counterintuitive to us. This seems like, I mean, Pastor Paul, how is that flourishing? How is that the good life? It's the good life. It's flourishing because of what Jesus promises. He says, when you mourn, what? Blessed are you. Flourishing are you when you mourn. Because that's the only way you'll be comforted. And here, comfort, I think Jesus is possibly drawing on Psalm 32. Now listen to, listen to the language. It's very similar. It's almost like Jesus read the Old Testament or something. All right, here we go. Blessed, ble- hear that? Blessed, flourishing, 
is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, how, how do you get there? That's the question. How do you get there? Don't you want to be that person? Don't you want to be the person that's comforted? Don't you want to be the person that God does not count his iniquity against you, your iniquity against him? He says, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you see how that works? When we keep silent, when we repress it, when, when, when we try to channel our mourning into some other outlet, something that will numb us, something that will take our mind off what's going on, God says, you're short-circuiting the very means of grace that I have for you. But see, when you're poor in spirit, which leads to your mourning, and you park it before me, and you come before my throne, I have comfort. I have the gospel. I get to offer you grace. You, you think coming out with it, you think confessing it, you think, you think no longer hiding it is going to be the ruin of your life. Jesus says, it's just the opposite. It's where my grace meets you. See, God doesn't want you to be numbed out this morning. God wants you to be comforted, truly comforted. You know, when we run to those idols to try to comfort our souls, whether it's drugs or porn, or, or we, we sanitize it as, as a merit, you know, it, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's, maybe it's your hobby. You know, it, it, it does take away the pain for a moment, doesn't it? But it's never enough. You always have to come back for more and more and more. And God says, I don't, that, that's not flourishing. So let me tell you what's flourishing. Flourishing is when you mourn, because that's when I will comfort you. Third one, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are those who are meek. Now, when we hear the word meek, what does that mean? You know, meek and mild, it sounds kind of corny, sounds a little like cowardice or fear or or mealy mouth, or not standing up for, for our rights. What, what do we mean by this word of meekness? Here's what, here's what Lloyd-Jones again says. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, which is what we've been talking about, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. It is my attitude toward myself, and it is an expression of that in my relationship to others. Now, do you see how these build? As we are poor in spirit, see ourselves for who we truly are. And as we mourn our sin and confess our sin and God comforts us, isn't it interesting that that begins to transform the way we interact and relate to other people? See, this idea of meekness has a reference point. See, poor in spirit Mourning, these are all sort of like internal spiritual disciplines and exercises that God is doing in our life. But meekness is sort of 
the next in line. It's, it, it's what, produce, what is being produced in our relationship with others. You see, when, when and, and, and if you have someone who, who just has a habitually bad relationships with other people, disconcordant relationships, conflicts, habituated kinds of relationships, we need to, you need to understand that's not fundamentally a relational problem. Just why with a marriage a couple who always fights in their marriage, it's not fundamentally a human relationship problem. It's foundationally a God problem. It is a, it is a God issue. It, it, it's failing to see who we truly are and understanding and having sympathy and empathy for who people truly are. See, essentially the meek don't throw their weight around. The meek don't have to claim all of their rights right then, right now. The meek don't have to have the last word. Even though they could. Even though it feels so good. The meek doesn't, they, the meek doesn't have to press send. The meek does not have to post that thing. The meek does not have to to. to, to and it, some, let's be honest, we, we compose that email, you compose that text, it feels so good to send, send, right? Hit send. It feels so good. Jesus says, that's not flourishing. That's not flourishing. Because when you're, when you're meek, I have this amazing inheritance for you. See, this is, this is, the, this is the, the paradox of it. Meekness doesn't make sense. In fact, of the ones that we've, and by the way, these just get ready, these get harder. Everyone just builds on it and it gets harder. But meekness might be the, so far the toughest one for me. Because meekness means not going there even when I could. Just remember, just because you can say something doesn't mean you should say something. See, when we think about meekness, we have to ask, who was the meekest, meekest person to ever live? And you get one guess, okay, right? It's Jesus, of course. And it's through his meekness that he conquered sin and death. Do you realize that Jesus did not exercise all of his rights? Do you realize that Jesus laid it aside so that he could go to a cross that he did not deserve? Listen to what Jen Pollock Michelle says. She says, God refused autonomy and chose surrender instead, emptying himself of prerogative and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, when we think about inheriting the earth, we think about being the master of our domain, or ruling over our little fiefdom, or, or getting the most out of we can, as we can out of life right now. And Jesus says, I've, I've got a whole other playing field in mind for you. See, I, I want you to inherit the earth. I don't mean that geospatial piece of territory where you live right now. I want to give you an internal inheritance. See, I'm coming back to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And I've got an amazing inheritance. I'll just blow away. 
anything that you think that you are building right now, anything that requires you to step on someone else, to disempower them, to rule over them, to abuse them, to manipulate them. Jesus says, stop. You're not flourishing. Flourishing. The ones who are flourishing in this room are the meek. See, this is, this is, this is kind of put up or shut up on this beatitude. Because here, we're not just following Jesus, our Savior. We're following Jesus, our King. See, our King has set a course. And we are his servants. And he says, I, I traded in my autonomous freedom and my rights. And now I'm asking you to trade yours in. So it's, our highest ethnic for Oaks is no longer autonomous freedom. It is obedient love. And this is why Jesus can make this amazing promise to us. Also later in Matthew, Matthew 10, he says this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, it says we are flourishing when we are meek. When we are meek, we are showing that our trust is not in ourselves. Our trust is not in us having to play God, having to fix every right, right every wrong, make adjustments to everyone else's life. Being meek says, I set that aside, and God, and I trust God to be God. God is going to take care of that thing. God is going to, God has got this under control. God is sovereign. He is, he, he doesn't need my help. See, our trust is in Jesus. That's who Jesus says is blessed. That's who Jesus says will receive his eternal inheritance. Do you realize this for a second? One more thing about meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Sometimes being meek is the most courageous thing that you and I can do. It shows that we trust and believe in God and that He knows best. He laid down His fullness. He gave up His freedom so that we could have life. And one of the things I'm going to encourage us to do in this season of going through these Beatitudes is we come to the table every week to remind ourselves who is it that embodies the Beatitudes in their perfection? It's Jesus. Jesus lived the most fulfilled life of any human being in the history of the world. Can you believe that? He, he lived the good life because his life was lived in submission to his Father and because his life gave us life. As we come to the, the table today, pray these things in your heart. Lord, I want to be someone who is characterized by being poor in spirit. I want to be someone who's being characterized as being someone who mourns. I want to be someone who's characterized by being meek, knowing that 
that is the path of grace for God's people. Knowing that he walked that path, he died that path, he was raised for us so that we could have the good life. Let's pray.